I'm Bill Thompson, and I want to welcome you to this, the rebooted 2LO from and for BBC Design and Engineering, the home of BBC Technology. We've called it 2LO after the BBC's original radio transmitter in London, now housed in the Science Museum, and a very early expression of our aim to put modern communications technology at the service of our audiences. And this new radio station, well, podcast, will explore every aspect of DE's activities and the people who are working to bring the best of everything to everyone. For this first programme, we're going to begin with a conversation with Matthew Postgate, our Chief Technology and Product Officer and the Head of the Division. Matthew, we're sitting in the Mondrian boardroom uh, here in uh, West 12. There's all sorts of building going on outside. This is, this is the beating heart of design and engineering, would you say? Or does it have many beating hearts? I think we've got at least three. So obviously the West 12 campus is an important site for us, uh, both from in terms of the people who are here and the technology that we've got out here. So we've got our significant broadcast infrastructure here, uh, along with a similar site up in Wood Norton. Not very many people in Wood Norton, relatively speaking, but again, some very important systems for us. And then, inevitably, we've got a centre of gravity in, in West 1 with uh, all of the engineering st- design and engineering staff that we have co-located with teams there, tutorial teams there. And then, of course, there's Salford. And within the Salford, Salford campus itself, we've got 700 design and engineering staff. So we're the single largest group in that campus. So that feels quite quite us as well. So so lots lots of beating hearts around the place. And, and you talked about sort of broadcast infrastructure. And I understand that last week you saw a test of how we will cope when it starts to break. Well, <laughs> we were looking at the resilience of our new network. So the network project is one that uh, I've described to the people working on it as they're building a cathedral that no one will ever see. Uh, and it's very much the foundations of the kind of systems that we want to put in place over the next decade. This is moving from our original network through to one that's more of an IP core um, and changing providers from from Vodafone to to BT. So it's a massive project, which is absolutely the foundation of a lot of the things that we want to move forward with. Uh, And obviously, in any engineering project of this scale, um, we've got various tests going through. But but last week was a big one where we were uh, testing the resilience of of the two main paths. Um, and it required an, a, a massive effort from from Andy Baker who's, and, and his team, and lots of volunteers actually, who um, were uh, monitoring all the various endpoints as we switched off one of the two paths, um, which obviously haven't been necessarily switched off before uh, in the same way. Uh, and obviously, it's probably the only way to kind of check the resilience, and much better to do that now than, than when we're relying on the network. And now that's all documented, because I remember the tale possibly apocryphal about the big switch in the basement of TVC, and nobody knew whether or not it was safe to turn it off, because nobody knew where it was wired into. So it was basically just left for a long time, because it was just far too dangerous to take the risk of taking BBC One off air. Well, there were a number of those switches in Television Centre, and I'm not sure we even knew where, where they all were. Um, actually, it's an interesting... Um, that was another interesting project. So the exit of TBC and, and trying to transition off all of the decades worth of infrastructure that was in that was was a project that you know I, I often don't think kind of received the credit that it, it's really due because it was delivered by a team from what was engineering uh, on time and ahead of budget. Sorry, ahead of time and not and on budget. Um, uh, it was a quite remarkable success, especially if, if they'd ever had the privilege of going to see what they were dismantling, which was. Um, 
I described as as the sort of the inside of the TARDIS, but about four times as big. Some parts of it are actually preserved because I don't know if you know this, but we brought Google and the Street View cameras into TVC as part of my work on the archive right. before we left. And so they wandered around with a little trolley with the eight cameras on. So <laughs> if you go to Google Street View, you can get into TVC as it was before we left. And some bits of that, that kit are still in place. And I know some of the more obsessive engineers as you're marking it up and yeah. figuring out which, which you know, what, what issue of hardware that was and stuff like that. <laughs> so, so but that point you make that we don't necessarily look back on our achievements because yeah, we, we just move on to the next thing mm. is, is a really important one and that's certainly because I saw it happening and we were among the last people to leave TVC it was really important yeah it was, a, it was a huge project that and um, it led to really the the, the, the the architecture that we're now putting in place around our broadcast infrastructure centres and the kind of philosophy that we're now following with some of that kind of larger scale engineering stuff um, there's, there's other people that would be able to describe that much more effectively than I, than I would Andy Baker being obvious um, Ross and the network team, Andy Lee also thinking a lot about that in, in terms of the policy around that do you think that having to move out of the building created the pressure to make the technical changes that, that it would actually have been harder for you to, to for that to happen had we not been physically moving um, actually I think the idea that we wanted to replace our network is, I think it's fair to say it's something that a lot of us wanted to look at, but inevitably, you know, touching something that's so broadcast critical comes with a, with a huge risk that, that often, you know, suppresses the speed at which we might want to change this stuff. Actually, the forcing mechanism in that case was the end of the technology framework contract, uh, and that created a, con a contractual kind of end point, which meant that we had to address it. But you know, I think most people would recognise that we're we're doing it at the right time. So that, that that's actually what the force of mechanism was. But we, I'm glad that we're we're stuck into it now. Thank you. Well, thanks for your time, Matthew. Thank you. And we'll be talking to Andy Baker about the big failover test that Matthew mentioned in our next edition. Now, Alexa, Alexa, ask iPlayer to play the interview with Henry Cook. Play the Henry Cook interview. Alexa? Alexa? Okay, Google. Play Henry Cook. Google? Google? Henry? No? Siri? Cortana? Anyone? Oh, well, I suppose I'll just have to do it myself. My name's Henry Cook. I'm a producer technologist in Internet Research and Future Services, which is a division of R&D that um, deals with making software and prototypes and general projects around things that are enabled by the internet or things that the internet enables. Um, so previous projects have been things like internet connected radios, we've done bits and pieces of IoT stuff, there's a load of data science happening. But my project is Talking With Machines, which is a project which has been set up to explore spoken devices. So things like Amazon Alexa, Google Home, whatever Siri mutates into. Um, and we're kind of interested in exploring those things, not only in terms of how to make software for them, but also in terms of they're a whole, they kind of represent a whole new kind of design because you don't have a screen. So why does this matter to the BBC? Why, why is IRFS spending time thinking about devices you talk to? So for the BBC, they represent a really interesting set of 
opportunities, we think, because from some angles, they kind of look like a smart radio. So there's a really obvious route for us onto those devices there. And we've heard from Amazon that when people get an, uh, an Alexa and an Echo in their home, uh, their general listenership of radio tends to go up. So even if it's a household that doesn't listen to radio very much before they get an echo, it's, there's this kind of halo effect around it. Is, isn't that because the interfaces at the moment are so awful about the only successful thing you can do with it is ask it to play you music or radio? So you're right, yes. And the two biggest use cases for it, as of a little while ago, were setting timers in the kitchen and listening to music and radio. Uh, which kind of makes sense, I suppose, because it's a hands-free device and it's a hands-free device that's reasonably good at playing audio. Um, the things that we think are particularly interesting are, as an organisation, we're very good at voice, we're very good at the nuances of voice, and we're very good at things like writing copy and understanding that when you have that route to somebody's ears, which we've had for many, many years, we know how to modulate that route. So it's kind of that's interesting, especially because you've now got that kind of feedback where pe- you can't just you don't just broadcast, but you've got to return that yeah, you can yeah, talk. The, the, the machine is talking back to you, so yeah. you're actually designing an interaction, not just a way of getting the program you want. Exactly, and that gets really interesting when you start thinking about well, what does that mean for interacting with characters, or what does that mean for interacting with particular shows or particular kinds of writing? So at the moment, we've got a design project on where we're working with some people from Children's and we're having a look at uh, prototyping some simple spoken apps for children. And that's really interesting because not only are kids, we think, a bit more willing to be playful, so they, they might not be so bound by what adults see as the limitations of the device, but also a lot of parents are worried about the amount of time that their kids spend with a screen. So if you can make interactive stuff that takes kids away from screens, that's good. And there's also a load of really interesting opportunities for, like, uh, kids being able to talk directly to characters they like um, and being able to kind of, kind of get that interaction. Um, or you what, know. what you're talking about there is, is a lot more sophisticated than, than we currently have, where, you know, Alexa, you know, put the kettle on or whatever, yeah. where there's only the one character to interact with. So you're yeah. really pushing that envelope. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's interesting um, because... a lot of the stuff that we've seen so far, even the stuff for kids, is very unimaginative and very um, a lot of the stuff that we've seen for kids so far is very unimaginative and even the stuff that's supposed to be um, supposed to be kind of engaging that's telling kids stories or whatnot um, they're doing it with the robot Alexa voice which is just useless I mean it, that, that voice is designed for succinct response to commands you know Alexa turn the lights on okay so when you start having having it read out large chunks of a children's story it just sounds awful and wrong um, and it seems obvious to us that you know the way that you would make that much better is just better sticking some talent in a studio and getting something recorded with um, nuance and emotion. So, so, so back to humans actually doing the work and then the machine just presents it. Surely we could generate computer-based voices with inflections or are we still some way from that? This is a really interesting question uh, it, and it sort of gets a little bit ineffable. I mean the state of the art for uh, generated voices is a project which Google demoed at the end of last year and they like everybody else went let's throw a neural network at it um, and they threw a neural network at, at voice generation and that that actually did start to generate stuff that sounds really human and have human inflection patterns but 
I think that's all quite experimental at the moment, and also I think so. So, so the talent doesn't need to worry too much about being replaced on on question time. So, a lot of the stuff that we deal with in this department, I mean, it's something that my colleagues on the uh, editorial algorithms team deal with quite frequently. Is I mean, so they're trying to uh, make tools for uh, news people to make their life easier while researching, and a lot of the questions they get asked when they when they go out and they try to model people's workflows is. Well, are you just writing AIs that are going to replace news editors? And No, 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 not at all. What we're trying to do is automate the boring bits and uh, make the bits that require humans easier to do, and freeing up humans for the things that humans are good at doing, nuance, story, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I don't think that AIs are ever going to... Well, I don't think AIs within the next, say, five, ten years are going to be anywhere near as good as humans at stuff like storytelling, emotion, nuance, all but, that. But they will start to get very good at responding to voice and allowing internet-connected devices to engage with you rather than just do what you tell them to? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, it's interesting. There's, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening with chatbots at the moment. and a lot of the, So chatbots are a very hot topic, and it's something that we kind of... We, we well, what do you mean by a chatbot? A software agent which runs on, say, Facebook Messenger, and you can do things like uh, order a, a pizza or a taxi. Uh, are the, are the obvious examples that they always give, but there are there are examples of well, there are examples in the BBC of news labs making chatbots that people can talk to and ask simple questions about the news. So you know, here's a bunch of stories. Which ones would you like to hear more about? And we've been doing a little bit of work on interrogating those a bit further. So it's not pretending to be a human, but it is, it is allowing further engagement than you would normally expect. Yes, once you can sort of model a bit of the knowledge behind a, a news story or a particular piece of content, then you can allow a human to interrogate that tree a bit. And it's not pretending to be human as such, but it is modelling the kinds of interaction that work well for things that are like chat, text chat. Now a lot of the stuff, I mean you can you can sort of have a look into this and and there are a lot there's a lot of noise around chatbots at the moment. A lot of people are like this is the future of inter, inter engagement with brands. Um I think that's probably all gonna settle down in the next few months, year or so and we'll start to see actual proper applications of it that are good and a lot of the other stuff's gonna fall off. The reason I make the analogy is we were talking about whether machines are going to get better than humans at sort of brokering simple interactions, and I think that's true to a point. And I think when you want to get any more interesting or nuanced, or in our case particularly, if you want to do things that are particularly creative or um, make a connection with people on a level over and above sort of simple transactions, I think that's where bringing a human comes back. There's, right. There was this kind of there was a headline a little while ago, and I'm sure it's a it's clickbait, but it said something like, "The largest growth industry in Silicon Valley at the moment is poets," <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. It's a lovely little phrase, um, obviously hyperbole, but it shows that a lot of the big players are taking this kind of idea of nuance in writing uh, and nuance in language seriously, which is great. Oh, Silicon Valley poet sounds like one of the best jobs ever. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> you could be a poet at the BBC. So how far have you got in your work with the, the various voice-activated devices? Where, where are you at the moment? So Talk With Machines is a two-pronged project. Um, the, the, we have one prong... This is a terrible analogy. Uh, we have one works... Let's, let's go with prongs. We have one prong that is um, broadly theoretical. So we're looking at things like the UX challenges of spoken devices, how do you deal with not having a screen, 
what do you need to do with voice? How does tone of voice differ for application? Which is quite interesting. So for instance, if you had a, uh, a traffic application, which is designed for, for quick access to information, the language that you use to talk to your user there has to be very succinct and to the point. You don't want to get in the way of getting the information to your users. But say in the case of, for instance, uh, an entertainment app that's um, putting together an evening of proms programming for you and you're relaxed and you're at home, that, that interface can afford to be a bit chattier and a bit more discursive. So that, we've been sort of looking to those kind of questions in the design research. We also have a practical prong. <laughs> And in that, we're actually making software and prototyping things. And we have been working on a voice-controlled BBC radio player, so a kind of minimum viable iPlayer for Alexa. And that's pretty mature now. That's getting to a good MVP, which is nice. The next line of work we're going to be looking into with that is possibly prototyping out some of this design work with children's. We've also got hold of a Google Home, and we're having a look at that. And it's, what's quite nice is that the programming model for the home is pretty sim similar to the programming model for Alexa. So what we're hoping is that we can come up with sort of clever ways to write software that can address both, and then we're not bound to any one particular device. We can, we can sort of say, okay, here's an abstraction layer for any spoken device that people might want to talk to, and then onto the BBC, so we don't have to keep writing bespoke bits of software every time. Right, so so avoid avoid the being trapped into lots of different technologies emerging from various. I mean, because you said um, you know, whatever Siri evolves into, so yeah. it's clear that everyone's going to have a play here. You see what the BBC is doing is sitting on top of that. You don't imagine there'll be a, a BBC oh branded uh, voice activated system in people's homes. It's not out of the question, and some of the work that we're doing could support that. There are various open source attempts to duplicate bits of that stack. So when you're trying to understand what a user said and talk back to them, there's various problems that you have to solve. And you've, you've, you've got speech to text, which we already are looking into. You then have, once you've got the text of what the user said, trying to figure out what they actually meant, which is called intention mapping, which says, say I say something like, Alexa, ask the BBC to play six music. From those words, you then have to part, machine pass it down to the user has an intent. That intent is to play some audio, and the name of the audio that, that they want to play is BBC Six Music. And then it's sort of, yeah, modeling a machine understandable intent from what a user has said. And then you've got on top of that, once you've understood what the users meant, then routing that to an application, having an application do something. And there are various open source attempts to replicate bits of that stack, and we are hoping to be able to support those kinds of efforts. And once you've got a good open source stack that can do that work, then you know it's not out of the realms of possibility that we could run our own version of that and run a BBC service on top of that. It's so it could be we're actually looking at the time where you will be able to shout at the radio, and the radio might shout back. Well, wouldn't that be great, as long as it wasn't shouting angrily at the Today programme? <laughs> Thank you, Henry. Well, thanks for listening to this, the first programme on the rebooted 2LO. I'm Bill Thompson, and there'll be more next week.